You're listening to Hook Club, pop songs in detail. This podcast is for music lovers, aspiring songwriters, and industry professionals who want to learn more about how a successful song is made. Whether it's a song you love or hate, we'll be looking at why the hooks get stuck in your brain through detailed analysis and strong opinions. I'm Vinny, and I love the storytelling aspect of pop songs, so I enjoy breaking down lyrics and finding out the meaning, context, and intention behind songs. I'm Dion, and I run the Counterpoint Music Teaching Studio in Brisbane, so I love dissecting the melodies, the harmonies, and production techniques that help bring these stories to life. All right, today we are talking about Youngblood by Five Seconds of Summer, which was the most number one song of 2018, I believe. In Australia. In Australia, sorry, yes, yeah, in it, Australia. It topped the end of the year ARIA charts, which I... I'm really surprised by because there's lots of songs that kind of enter the cultural zeitgeist. You know, you hear them at the radio when you're at Coles and mm-hmm. things like that. And I just, I wasn't really aware of this song, despite the fact it was the biggest song in Australia last year. I wasn't aware of it until a couple months ago as well. Um, uh, the main reason I know of it, I've, uh, it's on the playlist at my girlfriend's place of employment. Okay. And, and she, you know, was like, this is a great song. Um, unfortunately... They, I think they took it off and replaced it with the Angus and Julia Stone cover of the song. Um, so she's quit her job. Yeah, she's quit her job now purely because of Angus and Julia Stone. <laughs> uh, so Youngblood by Five Seconds of Summer, written by three of the band members, Ashton Irwin, Callum Hood, Luke Hemmings. I thought it was very interesting that the fourth member, band member, um, who is the lead guitarist, okay, um, he provided backup vocals, but maybe I, he was out getting the coffee or something. Yeah, maybe and came back was like, ah, oh, there's no no room for a solo. Oh, okay, yeah. all right, well, I'll, I'll take the hit on this one. It's fine. <laughs> uh, also co-written by three American songwriters and producers: uh, Andrew Watt, Ali Tamposi, and Lewis or Louis Bell. I'm not sure what his pronunciation is. Um, Ali Tamposi and Andrew Watt often work as a songwriting team and they're co-writers on a number of songs from the album Youngblood from which this single is taken and Tamposi has also written a number of very successful songs including Stronger by Kelly Clarkson and Havana by Camila Cabello. I did read that one as well. So Lewis Bell is a songwriter and producer. He's worked most recently with the Jonas Brothers on their comeback album. Which is also fantastic. Yeah, I was listening to that this morning on my morning walk. Yeah. Um, and also has worked with Post Malone and Shawn Mendes, as well as Camila Cabello. So there's kind of this bit of a, a songwriting cartel in kind of California and America. Yep. Um, of all these people who get together and work and collaborate very regularly. So they kind of team off in little songwriting teams and often they'll work together on a bunch of songs for an artist and maybe they'll go off and grab another mate and they'll work on a different thing. So it's it's a very collaborative industry, uh, which not a lot of people know. They might assume that just the band is writing the song or it's like one songwriter for hire. But yeah, yeah. these days it's very much they'll get a, a few songwriters in a room as a team and they'll come up with a song. Yeah, I think that's cool. Like, it, especially if they're working with a band who before has, you know, mostly worked on the songs themselves. I mean, it's a much more mature song uh, 
than a lot of the stuff they've done previously. I don't recommend you go listen to She's Kinda Hot, but also do that. <laughs> it's, yeah. That's a great title. <laughs> I'm going to put that on the playlist with Stacey's mum. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, it would fit in there really, really, really well. I don't know much about Five Seconds of Summer. You've done a bit of research. What's their deal? A little bit. Um, they're just sort of, they were often kind of toted as... Australia's One Direction, at least in Australia, anyway. So, um, from that description, I have assumed that they were kind of manufactured together by a reality show or something. But what's the case there? How did uh, they start? They kind of just came together uh, being friends by the looks of it. Um, and uh, from Sydney. And they started out basically releasing videos uh, on YouTube. Structurally, they're a traditional band. You know, they have yeah, two guitarists, bass, guitar. Uh, sorry, two guitarists, bass and drums, and everyone sings as well, which was much more obvious on their earlier stuff. Um, I think maybe this this shift to Luke being more of the lead singer uh, on the last couple of singles, I feel like a lot of people are kind of over the boy band thing. I was going to ask about that because the idea of, I mean, those words boy band kind of bring to mind choreographed dance routines and, yeah, and things yeah. like that. And there tends to be a, a shift and even One Direction took a bit of a shift towards playing more instruments themselves and walking around stage with guitars. Am I right, right in that? Uh, Niall Horan um, basically did that from the start. Okay. Uh, none of the other guys uh, in live performances I've seen anyway, none of them, none of the other guys actually played live. Mm. Um, they may have played in the studio and that kind of stuff, but they never actually played instruments live. Okay. Yeah. yeah whereas, the, yeah, these guys started off playing their own instruments uh, yeah. from the get-go. What were your initial impressions of the song? What did you What did you think on first listen? Because, what, first listen for you at the time of recording was about a week ago? The main thing that catches me with this song is the groove or the feel or the beat. It is, I, it's driving and great. I like it a lot. Actually. Yeah, and for those who are listening with an ear on music theory, it's in 12.8. So the time signature, you've got this sort of pumping four beat kick drum doom, 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 doom. but inside each one of those beats you've got divided up into three so you have like a one and a two and a three and a four and a da 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 so you get this triplet feel going on through the whole time and it's not super common in pop music but a couple of uh my favorite songs do it um the wire by heim mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is also 12 8 yep great um, song the second half of Knights of Sidonia by Muse is in 12.8. So it's this kind of rolling, stomping kind of feel. Um, I really like the feel just because it opens up the opportunity for lots of really interesting rhythmic interplay between things. Yeah, absolutely. Like it really shows in this, I'm mean, you know, sure we'll get into it properly in a little bit, but the, the sort of intertwining of like the the triplet bass uh, in the chorus versus just the the fall to the floor, I guess you would call it, of, yeah. the, of the kick drum. It's, yeah, that, that interaction is really, really cool. I like that a lot. It's a really cool sounding song. It's yeah. really, it's got a, a great edge. It's, it's got a lot of drive. It's got a lot of intention, which is what I really like in pop songs. So yeah. what was your kind of opening thoughts on the song? One of the, the things that I sort of first noticed, particularly in terms of production, is that it, it is, again, a very traditional kind of band structure uh, kind of song. Uh, I really enjoyed like the tasteful use of, you know, synths and... And I'm, I mean, this song is full of big drums as oh, yeah. well. In that second, uh, when it kicks in properly in that second half of the second chorus, it they just, the big gated drums kind of smack you in the face. And I really, that, it feels good. 
Yeah, and we'll talk about what that gating is a little later we as well. We certainly will, yes. How does the song make you feel? Intense, I guess. Um, like it's, it's, you know, like glancing at the lyrics, it's pretty obvious. It's about young, naive love and, you know, all these ridiculous kind of promises that you make when you're, you know, a teenager, late teens, early 20s, whatever, and he says, I'm going to love you until the day I die. And, you know, it's the first person you've ever been in love with. And you feel all these things for the first time so very intensely. And then it all goes to crap because you realize that that's not necessarily what you feel about this person. It's just the fact that it was the first time you felt any sense of love or whatever. Uh-huh. One, uh, one kind of cool thing I did notice, you know, being about the, the young, naive love and the silly things we do and all that kind of stuff is that the, the singer, Luke, the storyteller, uh, is also acknowledging his part in the silliness, basically. Um, yeah, I was, I was looking at the lyrics and I thought, this is an odd story yeah. from the get-go. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's not just, a, you know, our relationship failed and it's your fault. It's our relationship failed because we're both young and a bit stupid, maybe. <laughs> I guess it could be sort of the, the rockier part of the relationship that they're getting into. Remember the words you told me, love me till the day I die is the, you know, the opening line of the song. Um, and you know, that's one of those big, almost ridiculous promises that you make in those first serious relationships uh, that a lot of people have. Yeah. I can't speak that I'm any different to that. It's, you kind of look back at those early relationships or early stages of serious relationships with a bit of, oh, I did that, what? Exactly, And yeah. particularly when you start to hear it from the other side of the story as well. Yeah. And they're like, remember when you did this and that was really weird? And you're like, huh? I was being sensitive <laughs> and nice and thoughtful. And they're like, no, that was just weird. Yeah, that was weird and awful. And I'm terribly sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, and, the, you know, the rest of the verse kind of continues with that theme. Surrender my everything because you made me believe you're mine. Uh, and then this is where it starts to get a little bit more rocky. Uh, you used to call me baby. Now you're calling me by name. It takes one to know one. Yeah, you beat me at my own damn game. Um, and they're not talking Monopoly. No, they're not talking Monopoly or Risk. They're talking about being a shithead. Yeah. And I think it's it's kind of a good thing. I mean, he's not necessarily saying I need to work on this, but the guy's acknowledging his own part in the silly games that people will often play towards the end of a relationship. The chorus kind of seems to reflect that in its repeat. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, in the choruses, in the first half of the chorus, you have, but you need it. Yeah, you need it all of the time. And then as it repeats, it's because I need it. Yeah, I need it all the time. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's that on again, off again thing that they're, that they're, uh, the, the storyteller is obviously trying to say is, is probably a pretty terrible idea. Um, you know, you say you want me, say you want me out of your life. And then the second half is say you want me, say you want me back in your life. Yes. You know, what is, what's the, what is, what is going on here? Um, I, I get this entire chorus stuck in my head as well. I know the, the, that's, that's kind of probably the main melodic hook, but the intensity of the song of the chorus, uh, is what gets stuck in my head. I think because it's one of those really sort of shouty choruses, you know, there's not a lot of, it's not there to produce a beautiful melody. It's there to be a very shouty or very gang vocal style thing. And those kind of gang vocals or that kind of shouting is often on, uh, you know, a single melody note. And yeah. so you get, you get more of a rhythmic hook more so than a melodic hook. So I, you know, uh, most of what I grew up uh, listening to was pop punk and punk music and hardcore and stuff like that. So I think gang vocals to me in particular, they're a huge proponent in, the, in those kinds of music, a huge 
you know, my friends kind of thing. <laughs> um, so I think that is probably part of the reason this chorus sticks out so hard for me is, uh, yeah, that second half where all of the guys are singing and it's that, yeah, big, shouting, intense moment. And they're kind of matching that with, you know, there's a number of singers in the band. All four of them sing. All four of them sing, And yes. there's no real harmony in the chorus. There's, no, not There's unison and there's an octave below yeah. as, as this kind of everyone's singing exactly the same line at exactly the same time. There's no pretty harmonies to flesh out that. The only time that com- comes in is in the second verse. Yeah, which actually I've, I've got a little note here. So that that second half of the second verse, so who you've been calling baby, nobody could take my place. When you're looking at those strangers, I hope to God you see my face. That's the only place in the song where there's an actual harmony. And I think that's a very deliberate move. Um, because Why Because so? it, it brings this second character directly into the story. Okay. Yeah, see, I didn't see that at all as a storytelling device. I just thought it was a, <laughs> let's, let's keep the interest going by um, introducing a new element into the production. Well, see, as, as someone who focuses on lyrics, it is something you notice. Okay. Um, and it's something that songwriters that I've worked with in the past and even stuff that I've done in my own music, it's about that, as you're telling the story, introducing the different characters through either... Uh, you know, build-ups, new instruments being introduced or harmonies being introduced into the into the fold. In that pre-chorus, in the, you know, after the first verse, there is kind of more of a storytelling device as well because the it's the only chord change in the song. Yeah. Um, which, so it goes from that, that initial idea of the, you know, the kind of relationship might not be doing that well and then into the pre-chorus where it's obvious, you know, you're pushing, you're pushing, I'm pulling away, etc. This is bad. It's... It's a fairly obvious change uh, in the story. Then after the second verse, it just goes straight from the verse to that intense chorus. We'll come back to Youngblood in a moment. But first, here's a sneak peek at the next episode, where we put the magnifying glass over me by Taylor Swift and Brendan Urie. It's basically saying there's there's only one of me and there's only one of you. That's the core message of the chorus. And yep. it finishes the tagline and I promise that nobody's going to love you like me. Which to me, sorry, very quickly, that's a horrible line. That's a horrible thing to say to someone. Yes. I promise that no one's going to love you like me. That is mean and horrible. And I don't like it at all, Taylor. <laughs> like that's... <sighs> It's what's commonly referred to as gaslighting, to make someone doubt themselves by, you know, making yourself out to to be almost doing them a favour. That's next time on Hook Club. But for now, back to the episode. So as you mentioned, the chord progression is very repetitive through the verses and the chorus. It's the same chord progression. Uh, and it's a pretty simple chord progression. It starts with a, a G minor. Then goes to an F major, then to a B flat major, then to an E flat, back to an F. So it kind of cycles around those chords, which is kind of interesting in itself. So if we're thinking about this song as being in the key of G minor, because that's where things resolve back to, often if you're in a minor key, you'll actually hear quite a few minor chords, or at least a, another one or two chords in that progression. However, the G minor is the only minor chord in the whole progression. 
every everything else is major chords. So we don't actually get an overall sense of real despair. You kind of had this opening, things are a bit shit, but then after that, everything else is much more powerful before resolving back to the sadness. And I think that's quite an interesting device of chord use, of that resolving to the minor chord, but everything else is major. Had you picked up on that kind of vibe? I had. Um, based on uh, on conversations we've had previously, I did listen a little bit more intently to the the chords and also the the melody. The way they differentiate the chords in the verse from the chorus is really through instrumentation. So in that first verse, we're hearing those chords and they're played by using a trick called parallel thirds. And we hear this a lot these days in pop music, particularly with guitar lines, but also in dance music with synths. And basically all that means is you've got a bass note, which is the root note of the chord. In this case, it's G. And above that, you are hearing the third note of the chord. So it would be B flat. And they're the only two notes that you hear from that chord. Now, chords commonly have three notes in them, just like that. But in this case, they're, you're only hearing the first and the third. And that's all you really need to get a full picture of what the chord is. So it's stripping back the chord to its bare essentials, the first and the third. And all the chords move in these parallel thirds. And it leaves a really open space for the vocal melody to come through and sounds kind of a little ghostly. Um, you did mention uh, briefly there, you know, saying that this is often a thing with, uh, you know, guitar uh, parts. Um, my assumption, you know, from, from looking at, you know, little live clips and stuff like that is that this song was written on guitar um, and... The shapes of the chords that Luke plays are not generally shapes you would necessarily go for, but they are very heavily just straight up centered on those thirds. Yes. Um, And I don't know what came first, whether it was the dance music that did the thirds or whether it was the guitars who were bringing that first forward, but it's so common these days. If you know where to, how to listen for that, you're going to hear it in a lot of current pop songs. The fact that it it starts on a G minor. It's not necessarily a chord that a guitarist would go straight for. Um, you know, uh, if you know the the you know the main open chords of the guitar, generally people are playing uh, in E minor or G major. Um, I, I think it probably would have been in a, in a studio kind of situation. Someone would probably say, "Hey, let's make this song higher. Stick a capo on the third fret of the guitar. Now it's in G minor instead of E minor, so it sounds a little bit different to." a regular guitar-written song. Yeah, and that would happen regularly when people write songs, particularly for other singers, is that the singer might have real trouble hitting a particular note, so they either bring the key of the song down or they might shift it up so it takes it into a range of their voice that has a little bit more punch or excitement, whatever it might be. So you're trying to aim for that sweet spot of it feeling really powerful but not out of reach. Um, And in acoustic performances of the song... I did notice uh, a couple that I saw. They play that uh, Luke will play the song without the capo. He'll play it in E minor, not G minor. Uh, over that first verse, you also have this little uh, ostinato, which is kind of re- repetitious second guitar part um, that oscillates between a B flat and an F, and a B flat and G. So if you listen out closely, you'll hear that. And when that's played on top of the chords or the the bass notes 
it kind of creates these extra big chord extensions as well. So you are hearing a more complicated harmony overall than just these parallel thirds because of this other part that's kicking around above that. Once the chorus kicks in, all that guitar part drops and you're just left with uh, bass guitar, this distorted bass line. But having heard those same chords through the verse, our brains do a wonderful thing. They fill in all the gaps with that missing harmonic information. So now you've only got a bass guitar, but because we've heard those chords fleshed out by guitars previously, we know what those chords are, even though we're only hearing one note of them, which is a really interesting trick that our brains play when you pull instruments in or out of a song. Well, that's cool. It is kind of cool. It's, 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 yeah, it's... Uh, like the failed relationship. When she stops calling you pet names, you can fill in the blanks. <laughs> you can. As you said, this song is a very kind of traditional instrumentation. Yep. But for me, the pop structure of it is very much built around dance tracks. Yeah, that makes sense. You've got this really steady and well-intentioned or well-thought-out, very deliberate build-up. So when we have the, the first verse... It's just guitars. Yep. Then it comes into the first chorus and you get the guitars go. It's just a bass drum and it's just the bass guitar. Yep. So it's almost like the first drop in a, in a dance track. I hadn't thought of it like that, but yeah. yeah and absolutely. then the second half of the chorus, the only other element that comes in is uh, there's a guitar line and there's also some clicks. So that kind of introduces a little bit more rhythm. That's the one. A little <laughs> bit more rhythm in that first chorus. Then... Second chorus, the, it starts out with stomps and clicks and then goes into full drums and claps. So it amplifies up that, that drumming track in the second half of the chorus. Yeah. And then when the third chorus starts, those things are all there from the start. So it all kind of builds up, builds up, builds up through those choruses. We've talked about the drums and this element of gated drums coming in. What's your understanding of how gating works on drums? I do know how it works, but I don't want to explain it because I don't want to fuck it up and sound like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll take it on then for you. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious how a gate works. It opens and closes. It opens and lets sound through, and then it cuts off, in this case, very abruptly and cuts the sound off. Yeah, so typically on big 80s sounding drums. So if you think like Phil Collins era drums, that sort of in the air tonight fill that we hear quite a lot as a... That exact fill is in the song, but it's in a 12-8 feel uh, and, you know, it, it's slightly faster. So where it is, it's not something you would notice, uh, particularly if you're, if you're not uh, a drummer, but that exact fill is played uh, in the second chorus. Yeah, and you can almost guarantee that when they were doing the production for this song, the name Phil Collins would have been mentioned in in their choosing of how to process the drums and that drum fill. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so you get these massive sounding drums and the trick to those sounding massive but not muddy is the fact that they are gated. So once the volume goes below a certain threshold, then that drum is then silenced. So you can have this big open expanse uh, reverb or the echo on the drum, which might be like a... But rather than hearing that full tail, you hear the... And then it cuts off. There's a couple of different music videos for this song. Yes, there are. There's a live performance video, which is the one that I've watched the most. And then there's a second video, which is a story video set in Japan by the looks of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so tell me about the live performance video. I, it's a fairly 
standard sort of live performance video, I guess you would call it. It's, you know, it's them on stage. Uh, from memory, it's in black and white. It is in black and white. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is in black and white. I've, one thing it very much does is it gives fairly equal screen time to each member of the band. Okay. Which, again, I think is a very deliberate thing because fans... Uh, I've noticed are expressing this worry that it's going to become Luke and his band. Are you sure they don't just cut out the lead guitarist like they do in the writing credits? <laughs> uh, I didn't notice that, but, you know, maybe they do. <laughs> I didn't sit there and time all of their screen time, but yeah. Um, there's, it's also interspersed with, you know, tour footage, which is a very classic thing to do uh, in a live performance clip. Yes. You know, little... Uh, Slow motion or stop motiony type bits or little um, just the look. Look how cool we are. Yeah, we're, we're just at, we're regular dudes. We hang out. We're standing in front of the Eiffel Tower. How cool is that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the second film clip I actually quite enjoyed. It was a little bit surreal. I've only watched it once. So it's there's a group of these old people who have been transported back to their bodies of being teenagers um, or early twenties. So it's a very fifties stylized group of punks essentially with the big yeah, yeah. big quiffs of hair and leather jackets and stuff um, running amok in modern day looks like Tokyo or somewhere in Japan um, but because of there's no sign of the actual band in the film clip so you get these kind of group shots of of these uh, leather clad Japanese bikers singing the song and it makes it just look like a total j-pop song which <laughs> yeah it actually, totally and, it, get that. and it does fit in that genre like it's that overblown big drum production thing mm-hmm. that j-pop and k-pop often have so it was actually you know if i was just watching that clip for the very first time not knowing who was singing it i would not be surprised that it was a, a japanese band doing the song yeah okay fair enough and we like to give our songs that we review here a rating out of 10 and we like to give that out of 10 a relevant measurement based upon the song. Any thoughts as to what we're going to rate this out of 10 of? Maybe Young Loves. Young Loves or um, Youthful Fuck-Ups. <laughs> <laughs> a youthful Fuck-Ups is probably more apt. Yes. Yes. All right. So how many Youthful Fuck-Ups out of 10 would you give this song? I love the song being a, a lyrically... Uh, focused person when it comes to music. The whole thing gets stuck in my head. I love the storytelling aspect of it. Uh, I enjoy the production. I'm, I'm going pretty high with this one. I'm, I'm, I'm giving it eight youthful fuck-ups out of ten. We're on sync. On sync. We're in sync We're with in that. sync. I'm going with eight as well. There's still room for me at the top because the chord progression remains static through most of the song. And from an artistic point of view, I... Don't really agree with that trend, even though pretty much every song does it these days. I want a little something extra that makes me excited about the harmony. That is absolutely fair enough. Yep. Other than that, there's not a lot to fault with it. It doesn't overstay its welcome and gets stuck in your head. So what more do you want out of a pop song? Yeah. Let us know if you want more out of a pop song. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so if you have enjoyed listening to this episode, please give our other episodes a listen and give us a rating. Subscribe if you like, if that's the kind of thing that you do wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Uh, And if you want to support us and help us keep making this, you can go and visit patreon.com slash hookclub and see all the wonderful things that you can get if you want to become one of our patrons. 